welcome back to Holistic Health Masterclass podcast. This is Brett, and uh, we're back with uh, probably one of our last episodes for the year. Um, I definitely got another one, possibly two coming out after this, but this is being released on December 5th. Uh, I don't have any announcements, to be quite frank. Um, I'm just going to hop into today's show. Uh, the only favor that I would ask um, is, you know, people have often asked me why leave a review, why subscribe. And to be perfectly honest and straightforward, it simply helps with rankings in iTunes and it helps to get more ears and eyeballs on the podcast. So um, if you are not a subscriber, if you haven't left a review, uh, check out the show notes and just click the link. I've made a couple of really simple videos for you to follow. So if you're on your desktop or laptop, um, you can just log into iTunes and it's a step-by-step approach. It'll literally take you two minutes. And same thing on your phone. It will literally take you about 20 seconds on your phone to actually subscribe and leave a review. Okay, so that helps me, and especially because we're not uh, really advertising much on the show, um, it just helps to organically get the rankings and ratings up. So uh, that's it. Let's hop into today's show, and I got to say, I was very excited to record the show. Um, My guest today is Bo Bennett, who is a PhD uh, social scientist. He's an author, um, really one of these uh, sort of polymath um, people who has excelled in a, a number of different areas. But our topic of discussion today is um, m- the, the moral arguments for and against uh, eating meat. And Bo's uh, new book has just been released. You will hear us talk about that. Um, obviously, you can also click a link that will take you straight to the website and you can order his book. But um, the reason why I'm excited about this is, you know, if you're in the nutrition world, um, especially if you're a health professional or a nutritionist listening to this, um, perhaps you're already also following um, either a vegan or a keto or a carnivore type diet or whatever diet you subscribe to. And the the reason why I think this is an important discussion is because it really tackles a lot of these issues head on. And looking at it from a moral and ethical standpoint, it really helps us to understand a little bit more about our own personal moral framework. Um, it helps us to understand why perhaps uh, eating meat is not such a bad thing, as well as why meeting eat perhaps is a bad thing. And I think that what you'll take away from this episode is that there are different shades of gray in between. And I think that once you understand the different angles and the nuances within the larger discussion, my hope is that you will be able to be a little bit more tolerant or at least a little bit more understanding of people who have an opposing view or an opposing uh, moral framework. And, you know, the one thing I will say is by the end of this conversation, I believe that Bo and I reconcile a lot of stuff and we get to what we would both consider a happy medium. And again, that happy medium might not be your happy medium. It might go 100% against your uh, ideology, your philosophy, um, whatever that is. And um, yeah, I just I, I find it's a very fascinating discussion, especially in the public discourse which is so polarized and you know just people at each other's throats all day long uh, vegans bashing carnivores carnivores bashing vegans you know keto crowd bashing paleo crowd and it just keeps going round and round and and to be quite frank i think it's silly because 
if simply put, we're not all designed to eat the same type of food. There are genetics, there's ethnicity, there's environment, there's location, there's all of these things that come into the picture. And then when you layer on top of that the moral framework, um, you start understanding a little bit more about the complexity of um, our food choices. So I'm going to leave it at that. Um, I really hope you enjoyed today's show. I think it was a pretty awesome show, to be quite frank. And I would love it if you shared this with your friends, family, community. And of course, as I said in the beginning of this episode, uh, subscribing and leaving us a review. So enjoy today's show. And here is Bo Bennett. Hey, Bo, uh, thanks for stopping by on Holistic Health Masterclass podcast. Uh, great to have you here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so uh, I, I just want to plant a couple of flags for us. And uh, before I introduce yourself, um, I read through your book, and I'm going to let you sort of preface that and introduce the book to us. And I got to say, um, I feel like I'm going to, uh, like we're going to have a psychological workout today, but I also feel like my own biases and my own framework is uh, probably going to get uh, picked apart today as well. And so I'm kind of excited about that, actually, because I think that um, human beings, we all have blind spots, we all have um, our biases. And so my goal today on this podcast with you is to really take a step back and to look at the full um, moral and ethical landscape uh, versus prop up my own bias. Okay, that's, so... That's um, yeah, so Bo, um, you know, give us a little bit of your background. You know, you have a PhD. Um, you've sort of, uh, I'll, I'll let you you explain what you do and how you got into it. Sure. Well, my background is really in the critical thinking area, critical th critical thinking, logic, reason. Uh, I've been in this this area, if you want to call it that, for about for about ten, fifteen years, like really deep into it. My first book that I wrote on the topic is called Logically Fallacious, and it does extremely well. It's probably the the number one book on logical fallacies out there because I incorporate it with a with an interactive website where people are constantly posting. We're, we're tearing apart arguments. We're looking for the problems. So that really got me into it, and, and, and that was actually prefaced by uh, th that was kicked off, I should say by um, somebody giving me a book about Jesus. <laughs> and okay. I, I, was, I, was, um, I was raised Catholic, but I'd, I'd always considered myself, yeah, I'm a Catholic, whatever. And when somebody was really pushing Jesus on me, I decided to, to read the book and see what's going on here. And then that just opened up a whole new world of, of critical thinking and, and arguments and, and debate and, and everything. So... Uh, th that kind of kicked the whole thing off. And that might have been like 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, th throughout the whole uh, journey of critical thinking and debating different topics, mostly religion, uh, but I also started to kind of dabble in politics. And, and there was a lot of similarity with these arguments, even though the topics are very different. Mm. The one unifying uh, thing that that connects everything is is this whole idea of of psychology like what's going on in our mind how we use our mind to interpret the different facts and evidence and and arguments so i decided to go back to school essentially after i got my my uh 
first degree, my bachelor's in marketing, you know, many years ago, went back to school, I got a, a master's degree in general psychology, and then went for the PhD in social psychology, because I really like the idea of social psychology, the interaction with with people and, and how our behaviors and views change based on the influence of other people. So that's really my background. I, I, I teach as an adjunct professor at a local university. I have plenty of courses online where I teach different parts of critical thinking and, and logic, reason, psychology. And uh, basically, uh, about six months ago, somebody presented, asked, asked me a question. It, it was worded differently, but essentially the question was, why is it okay to kill and eat an animal, but it's not okay to kill and eat a human? And so kind of, kind of a weird question with um, many layers, I guess. It is. It, it was certainly a weird question, but it was one that uh, I realized you could quickly get caught um, giving a faulty answer, like not a real answer, if you try to dismiss it too quickly. Like, well, it's okay because, you know, people are really smart. Okay, so is it okay to eat stupid people? Oh, well, you got me there. <laughs> so if you keep on revising you know, via the abductio ad absurdum, you realize that the answers, the quick answers that you give and the quick answers maybe that I've been giving for a long time mm. really didn't hold much water. So that kind of sparked this whole thing that I devoted six months of my life to doing the research and really thinking about this and putting the book together. So that's where we are today. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously, we're going to unpack a whole bunch of this. And, uh, you know, again, reading through your book, um, I got to say it definitely expanded my mind and got me thinking a lot deeper about, you know, I think how, what most people would consider perhaps superficial uh, thinking or knee-jerk reactions or knee-jerk thinking or emotional thinking. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so we're going to unpack a lot of that today. But um, I think a couple of things that I want to clear right from the get-go, and, and you do this in your book. Um, the first thing is, you know, obviously we're talking about the moral argument for and against eating meat, right? And that, that's really the topic of the book. That's the topic of our, our podcast today. Um, so when you talk about meat and when we're talking about meat here, what, what are we really talking about when it comes to meat? What does that mean? I'm talking about the kind of meat that 98, 99% of all people in civilized countries eat. And I did mention that the book is kind of... Um, United States centric in that the statistics I use from the book are pretty much based on the United States, but they really do apply to Canada and, and Europe. I mean, it's somewhat there, there are differences. Yeah. yeah. But in, in terms of meat eating habits, when we, we look at most of Europe, uh, Canada, United States, it's all pretty much the same. I mean, we eat cows, we eat pigs, um, depending where in, uh, some sheep, fish, chicken. So that's what we're talking about eating meat. We're not talking about, um, and, and we're, uh, and I'm really focusing on the kind of like the casual meat eating, like you go to a restaurant or you go to a supermarket okay. and you buy the meat. I'm not talking about a, a, a farmer somewhere who raises their own livestock, kills it and eats it. Um, like none of those extreme cases, really just the, the majority that, that yeah, really, like hunters like and so on. Right. You're right. Like people who hunt, uh, do their own hunting. I mean, that's like a whole different class when there are different arguments applied and it doesn't affect, I mean, obviously it affects very few people statistically. Right. So right. I'm really focusing on just the people who go to restaurants, order meat, or the people who go to supermarkets and buy meat. 
And so perhaps I'll just extend that definition a little bit. Really what we're talking about in a nutshell is the sort of industrial farming system, right? The industrial um, animal farming system. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. So I I think so. As long as we understand that, uh, that it really does kind of include local farming as well. Like, uh, because a lot of people will maybe buy meat from a local farm, buy eggs from a local farm, um, and and that's that's included as well. That might not fall under industrial, but it's it it could be. Okay. All right. So um, okay. So that's good. And then the other thing I think is important um, to establish for our listeners is your particular, your personal position. Um, with all of this? Like, how would you consider your eating habits? Do you subscribe to any one particular type of eating? Sure. Um, I, I don't subscribe to any particular style of eating. I'm, I, I eat pretty much a, a lot of different varieties of food. Um, however, I did stop eating red meat and pork about 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. That was something I gave up early on. And I, we can get into that. But essentially, I, I, I'm very empathetic when it comes to animals. I love animals. And as we'll, we'll, we could talk about later, the cows and pigs, they, they seem to be more like us <laughs> in, in mm-hmm. ways that we could relate to. And, and even, even at an unconscious level, uh, the, our level of empathy for those, those creatures tend to be a lot greater than, say, like for chicken and fish. And I think at, at, at an unconscious level, that's why I never gave up chicken and fish. I still eat that today. Um, and that's probably why I gave up pork and beef and mm. I, I realized that more recently. So that's kind of where I am. Before I wrote the book, I would eat meat probably like six, seven, eight times a week. Okay. Um, but I still mostly ate a plant-based diet, like with pasta and stuff. Uh, but right. I, I never had a problem with like cheese on pizza or anything. But after I wrote the book, I really, I really reduced it. I eat meat now maybe uh, once or twice a week. Um, okay. And chicken and fish, and, and that's it. And it's, it's not a it's not a sacrifice for me. It was just replacing meals that I normally ate with something else. And, and I'm perfectly fine with it. Um, I have no problem, especially considering the fact that I, I still have like a delicious uh, chicken parm uh, once a week or uh, tuna fish for lunch. And I, I'm just, I'm fine where I am. Right, right. Um, yeah, and I think I, I would probably for myself fall into a similar kind of category. Um, you know, you consider yourself a flexitarian. Um, yes. I've been considering myself a flexitarian for many years now. Um, I did, I was vegetarian pretty hardcore for about three and a half years. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So like, I mean, right down to, uh, I, was, I wouldn't say vegan, but for different health reasons and whatnot, um, I cut all dairy out. So I went completely dairy-free down to the butter for mm. uh, three and a half years. And then I gave vegetarianism a good go. And, um, you know, I did it properly. I was doing the right food combining, getting the proteins in, blah, blah, blah. And I just found that for my body type, um, it just wasn't really working all that well. And so I had to wrestle with that. You know, um, I also taught nutrition and environment. So, you know, that was um, looking at a lot of the stuff more through the lens of an environmental perspective, um, you know, and then mapping that onto a health perspective. So I had to do a lot of wrestling um, a few years ago, you know, with, with mm. ethics, morals, my own moral framework and and my health, you know, and I think that's, um, probably something that we'll talk about today is is reconciling that because I think that's a a, a place where a lot of people find themselves. You know, sure. they might yeah. think morally like, "Oh gosh, you know, we shouldn't do this; it's wrong, whatever." But then, from a health perspective, like, what am you know? Am I sacrificing myself now? 
Um, right. You know, and, yeah. And, yeah, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. But, um, you know, since we're talking about morals and ethics, perhaps you can give us a definition of, uh, you know, just lightning fast definition. What, what are morals and what are ethics? Is there a difference between the two? Uh, generally, no, depending on the context that it's used. Usually when people are talking about ethics, they're more talking about a specific rule set. Um, for example, like in psychology, we have a code of ethics that you have to follow, okay. which, which is probably based off some deep moral principles, like doing no harm, but there are ethics are, are kind of like more specific. Generally, when we're talking about eating meat, the whole idea of, of uh, more like uh, is it a moral question or is it an ethical question? It's essentially the same. Uh, they're okay. used um, in the same way. And what we're talking about ultimately comes down to is right or wrong. Like, is it wrong to do this? Is it right? And of course, we got to answer the question, you know, why? If it is wrong to, to kill and eat animals, why is it wrong? Um, and if it's, if it's not wrong, why isn't it wrong? Right. Well, I think two things that come to mind, um, you know, one is, is obviously, and I'm sure you can address these, you know, one is, is, are, are we looking at animal well-being or the existence of an animal through a human lens? You know, so if I look at a cow or a fish or whatever, um, you know, do they feel what I feel? Do, right. you know, are they living the same? Are the, is it the same level of consciousness? Um, you know, and that's a lot to really grapple with. Uh, so that, that would be the first one. And then, of course, logically, the second one would be, are human beings morally superior to animals? Yeah. Um, so perhaps so, you can speak to those. Yeah. What, what you're describing is um, anthropomorphism. It's this idea that when we view other things, whether they be objects, um, nature, uh, animals, we tend to project our own personality and human characteristics in those things. So what's really interesting is when we think about what it's like to be a chicken, we're not thinking about what it's like to be a chicken. We're thinking what it's like to be a human in a chicken's body, <laughs> which is completely different. Because yeah. obviously, if you look at a chicken brain, and, and then you look at a human brain, it's very different. Uh, what we kind of go, one of the markers of of this whole idea and making moral evaluations is what I call cognitive complexity. And that's how cognitively complex an, an organism is. And you could use that as a very good indicator of what we might call sentience. And sentience is a term we use to that, that kind of in, in cases, a lot of other terms um, that are usually important to us. So like mm. sentience might be a consciousness that, that would be one of them. Um, the ability to experience pain and pleasure, uh, the, the, uh, the, the ability to have self-awareness. So all of these things come together in what, what might we call what we may call sentience. And the important consideration is to understand that sentience really isn't a binary thing. And, and right. we, we know this evolutionarily speaking, we know that it's not like at one point the light switch just came on and, mm -hmm. and, it, mm -hmm. and we have humanity. Uh, what we understand now about animals and, and we could judge this based on behaviors, based on, uh, uh, again, biological, uh, neurological factors that we could, we could test. We could get a pretty good sense on, how sentient a creature is, if we want to call it that. Okay. Uh, and cognitive complexity is one of those things. So if, for example, humans are, let's say, the most extremely cognitively complex by the number of neurons and, and the, the different parts of the brain, 
and we could we could kind of go down the evolutionary tree if if you want to call it that um and we could see that you know dolphins are very similar mm-hmm. similar enough like chimpanzees are extremely similar uh, elephants they like all of us are are really high up there but then there's kind of like a big leap when we go down to like dogs cats uh, cows pigs it it really goes down quite a bit and then even more so with chicken and fish and then eventually we get to some of the animals uh, like uh the sea sponge which is pretty much indistinguishable from a plant. So there's no really clear demarcation when it comes to like what is okay to eat and what behaves and feels like we do and what doesn't. So we need to consider all of these factors when we're talking about sentience. So, so I mean, we're talking about sentience and, and consciousness. I mean, perhaps sentience is a, is a better um, you know, framework to stay on. Would you then consider plants sentient beings as well? Uh, I'm not a biologist in in that sense, and I I just kind of go by what the latest science okay. tells us. Okay. There, there's definitely been some research showing that it, there's a good chance that what we consider sentience plants might have those characteristics as well. They might experience things, um, and and but there's also you know some indication that the universe might be conscious you know rocks could be i mean so you never know it's very difficult to tell but once again if we just look at what we do know and that's some like clear biological markers it's it's much more clear that that uh, animals that have a nervous system and a brain similar to us are much more likely to experience life the way the same way we do or similar compared to like a plant Okay. And so, I mean, I guess what you're also saying is that there is some sort of continuum, right, um, from or hierarchical system in terms of, of, of sentient, sentientness, if that's a word? Yes. Yeah, sure. There is some kind of, we could say that there is some kind of hierarchy. Okay. Okay. So um, let's hop into some of the arguments now that we've sort of like laid uh, a bit of the framing. And um, what, one of the, the big ones that I've always brought up is um, and, and I do have some notes here so that we keep on track because I, I feel like we could talk about this for many hours. <laughs> um, sure, yeah. The any existence is better than none at all. Um, and so I'll just sort of set that up for you. You, you know, the idea that um, the question that the way that I've always framed it anyway, is it better to have um, no life at all? and to not exist, considering that we are talking about domesticated animals, you know, whereby if we didn't breed them into existence or we left them to their own devices, they probably would not survive because they need human beings for their, um, you know, to live. So is it better for them to not exist or is it better for them even to just have a life? And I'm going to extend that one step further here. You know, animals that are out to pasture, that are having a good life um, up until, you know, slaughter, it, it, you know, and, and that's, that's a, a difficult one to grapple with. So perhaps you can unpack that a little bit for us. Sure. Yeah. If I could put that on hold for one second, I think yeah. there's one more topic that, that we really need to cover before we get into evaluating the arguments. And that's the whole idea of moral frameworks. So we, yes. we talked about sentience. 
but that really doesn't answer the question, well, why is something wrong versus why is something right? Mm, okay. And people have been asking these questions you know, of, you know, why is something wrong? Why is something right for, you know, since we've been able to communicate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And w to answer that, we need a, a moral framework. A lot of times there, there are religious moral frameworks saying, well, if it says this in my, my holy book here, then it's right or then it's wrong. And of course, we know there's a lot of problems with that. Most people, despite having, even if, even if they are religious, they still do subscribe to kind of a well-being based theory of morality, realizing that if something is moral, if something is good, then it does something to enhance well-being. If something is bad, then it adds to the suffering of, you know, and, and that's the big question of what a lot of people, most people, I would say, they do consider the well-being of animals as well, not just to humanity, but only to a, only to a small degree. It, it's really the focus of morality is on humanity, and that's that's problematic if you if you do consider the the, the similarities with a lot of different animals to us. Like if if we treat if we treat a, a chimpanzee, let's say, the same way we treat a mosquito, because you know we're humans and, and those are just animals, uh, I think virtually everybody would have a problem with that. Yeah, and not just on the emotional level, but you know, there's something wrong. Obviously, there's a difference between a chimpanzee and a mosquito, even though technically they're both animals. So, the moral framework that addresses this is what's called sentiocentrism. And, and this was an idea that's been around for a while, but I added a little twist to it that, that really does um, help understand this point and really hone in on these questions a lot better. So sentiocentrism, if you, if you look at that word, we're talking about sentience. Sentience is what matters when it comes to moral evaluations. So what's right and wrong is based on the understanding of the overall effect of behavior has on the well-being of the organisms. And here's the key, in proportion, to the organism's ability to experience well-being. So that's the key. That was the, the key that was missing. So when we look at a chimpanzee, we, could, we have a very good indication, what we talked about before, cognitive complexity, that a chimpanzee can experience well-being a lot differently and a lot more than a mosquito can. Uh, and we, so we could, we could take all different animals along the spectrum, and then we could consider their moral evaluations. We can consider how they play in, in our moral evaluations based on the idea of how they may experience well-being and suffering. So that, again, that's sentiocentrism, and that's considered a moral framework. And with that, if we adopt that, and if, if we could look at that and say, yeah, that seems like a reasonable uh, a, a reasonable moral framework for me, then we could use that and start answering these questions. Now, the problem is that there are still a lot of people who would say, you know, screw that. Um, I don't care about animals. If, if uh, there was this one comedian that did a joke a while back, he said, look, if, um, if hooking a monkey's brain up to a car battery stops cancer, I just got one thing to say. You know, red is positive and black is negative. <laughs> the whole idea being it, you know, it doesn't matter. We could, we could use them if it benefits us and, you know, forget about it. But I think most people do understand because of human empathy that we, we do have this connection and it, it, it hurts us. And that's, that's the, the basis of morality is empathy. If we didn't have empathy, if we didn't have this biological empathy, there would, there would be no morality. So it really is kind of like an effective, like a, like a, a visceral type of feeling. And uh, that's why animals do play a part 
And the reason, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why many of us don't really care about cows or pigs or chicken or fish is because we've been, we've been socialized to not care about them through, through our culture, through our socialization. And therefore we kind of treat them like mosquitoes or it really doesn't matter because, you know, we like the taste of meat. So that's something to consider when when we when we start answering these questions. Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, you know also if you if you just look at at least industrialized uh, countries, we're so far removed from our food source that you know I mean they actually yeah. did a survey here in Toronto, believe it or not, and a third of people had never actually seen a real cow. Wow! If you can believe it, in, in one of the major cities in North America, a third of people had never actually seen a real cow because they just lived in the city and that's it. Yeah. So when you consider that as well, you know, I mean, meat nowadays is you just go to the store and it's all packaged up or you go to a restaurant and it's cooked already. So, you know, you don't have that disconnect. And, and I think one of the other questions that we'll get into um, a little bit later is the whole notion of, you know, if you can't kill an animal, then you shouldn't be eating meat. Right, right. Yeah, I can definitely address that. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to that. But let's, uh, let's start off with, um, you yeah, know, that argument you talked about. Yeah, yeah, the existence, uh, you know, some existence is better than none or... Uh, right, and and that's that's a really good point. That was probably my, um, my biggest argument that I had for the, the raising of animals, because we raise 10 billion animals, uh, in, including like chicken and, and cows and pigs to eat. That's a, a year. That's how many we raise yeah, a insane. year as like our food source. It's crazy. So if those animals did not exist, if we didn't raise them, they wouldn't exist. So the question is, as you asked before, is their existence, does that add more to well-being? Because if we're looking at sentiocentrism, like general well-being, does that add more to well-being than if they weren't? So clearly we can look at it from a, from a human perspective, it definitely adds to the well-being, being able to, to feed uh, countries and people and population. Um, and not, not just, we're not just talking about, ooh, meat tastes delicious, but we're talking about survival. I mean, if all of these animals disappeared, like tomorrow, we, as, as, a, as a species, would be screwed. Uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I, I'm of the idea that within time, maybe decades, we could, like if we really wanted to, move away from meat to a like a non-meat diet, but it would take decades. I mean, it's not something that would happen overnight. And it, it would, I feel, would take a, a Herculean effort as well. I mean, it, just, you know, okay, let's, let's just broaden the horizon here and say, from an industrialized perspective, you know, we'll get into the whole reduction versus abstinence um, uh, arg- mm-hmm. argument a little bit later on. But from a Western standpoint, you know, we have the luxury of being able to make these kinds of decisions, you know, so yeah. lab grown meat or, hey, I can just go down to the store and I can get beans, I can get this, I can get that, whatever. But, you know, if you're someone who is a goat herder in in rural Africa and, you know, or, or in the mountains in the Himalayas or something like that, you don't have, there's no choice, you know, and if yeah. all of a sudden you were to become vegan or vegetarian, um, it's not going to look good for you and your community, you know? So, right. right. No. It, it would yeah. be, it would be like disastrous. I mean, it, again, I, I think you, you, you worded it well, it'd be a Herculean effort to, to make that happen. Uh, but let's just say, forget about that. Let's not talk about the practicality or yeah. the logistics. Yeah. Let's talk about the morality of the situation. Um, so if you, if you do kind of consider humanity, 
and we understand that probably about like like 1.5 1.6% of of humans commit suicide or seriously attempt to commit suicide uh, because they are they're of they're convinced that their life would be or they would be better off dead than living because they're suffering so badly mm. now that's i mean that that's a horrible position to be in uh, but that's a very small percentage of people considering how many people we would say you have it pretty bad like ha- their lives are pretty terrible if you look at uh, some people and how they live and uh, the kind of conditions they go through and, and their day-to-day activities it, it's i mean it, it kind of blows your mind to think about uh, like oh geez if i were in their shoes you know i'd i'd end it uh, but that's not the case. The, the will to live is is just incredibly strong for evolutionary reasons, obviously. But also, there the benefit of living and just the joy of being alive is is so great that it overshadows a lot of the, this pain and suffering that we deal with. And that's why people just kind of keep keep going on and enjoy yeah. the great parts of life and enjoy a good sunset or or breath of fresh air whenever they could or or whatever. So if, if you kind of take that and consider animals, um, depending on who you ask, and if, if you're using some of the, the cases that you might see on YouTube with the poor animals getting beaten, um, which are, are really, those are the outliers. That's not, this doesn't happen like <laughs> to every animal. Um, but if you just take like the average farm animal and the life that the, the farm animal goes through, it, it's probably a, a good uh, you, you could probably estimate that and just come to the conclusion that, you know what, they're probably better off living. That That's probably adding well-being for themselves, not just for humanity, yeah. but yeah. We, we give life to them. And then, you know, when we're ready and when they're ready, we take it from them. Uh, if we could ask them, you know, well, do you think this is a good deal or would you rather not be alive? I, I would happen to think that they would say, you know what, it, it's a good deal. I'll, I'll take it. Uh, but again, that's total speculation, and it's really a philosophical argument. That it is indeed, yeah. yeah. Well, also again, it comes back to the whole idea of looking at it through a human lens, right? Because I right. don't think we will ever know what it's like to really fully be a cow, like uh, right, right. And considering it. that that the human characteristics that are very unique is is being able to consider our own morality and think about and philosophize about our own morality and think about how how good or bad we have it and how somebody else compare our lives to other people. Mm -hmm. Um, The chances are that no animals that, that we eat have this kind of uh, uh, cognitive ability. So they're not thinking about, Oh geez, I wish I were a human sitting in that mansion watching TV. I mean, that's, that's just not, they just don't well, think uh, well, and and I think also, I mean, they're 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 so present that there's no real sense of time and time. You know, it's right. like they're not going, oh man, you know what? Remember ten years ago, like, oh man, that patch of grass over there, and yeah, we ate those flowers or whatever it was, you know. Or remember old Bob, you know, like we yeah. just they they don't re- they're just in the moment right now, living day to day, which I think is awesome. I mean, if, if human beings were a little bit more like that and, and um, conscious and present, you, you know, that would be a very good thing for us. But, um, 
Well, the, the downside of that, of course, is if you look at, let's say, a, a chicken that spends its life in like this really tight enclosure that's not comfortable with, at least if we're human, we could say, okay, let's close our eyes and let's go to the beach, you know, and let's think about right. ourselves in the sun, <laughs> right, think right. about something more pleasant. But if, if you're stuck in the moment and it's a pretty horrible moment, well, you got to factor that in as well. Yeah. Well, I guess this brings up uh, one of the other arguments, you know, is human well-being more important than animal well-being? Um, yeah. You know, so perhaps you can dive into that one for us. Sure. And I would say that 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 question in itself is is somewhat flawed because well-being isn't a binary construct where we right. have well-being, they have well-being. Again, if we look at well-being on a spectrum, we have flourishing on one end and we have suffering on the other end. And there's that's kind of like our well-being. So the question is, you know, what what does let's say eating an animal do for us versus um for the animal? So a, a good example would be, let's take one of the vegan arguments about coffee. You, you hear them say sometimes, so you think it's okay to pull a calf away from her mother uh, so you could have a cup of coffee? It's like, you heartless bastard. Uh, but if you think about it, that, that's not what's going on here. Uh, if if we take a calf away from the mother so the the cow could produce milk like constantly, that's one heck of a lot of milk. That's not one cup of coffee. That's 10,000, 100,000 cups of coffee with, with milk in there. Uh, that's a lot of well-being added to humanity versus, yes, there's probably some suffering with, with either the calf or the mother or a little bit of both. So we have to measure that in proportion. So not only are we measuring the well-being and, uh, and the suffering of, of the two different species, the humans and the cows, what they're going through. But remember, if we're thinking about sentiocentrism, we also have to consider their ability to experience well-being and suffer in proportion to the animal or the organism itself, so the cognitive complexity. Mm -hmm. So if, if we said, okay, if, let's just put a human in that position, uh, just for, for uh, the sake of this argument. If we drank um, human milk, and we had to pull a baby away from a mother um, so 100,000 people could, could have their coffee, well, we could say, okay, that, that changes things a bit. Right. The argument changes things a bit. Let's forget about human rights and let's forget about, let's just talk about how the mother, we can understand, okay, the mother probably would be suffering a lot more. Uh, the baby probably you know, wouldn't even care as long as he got a bottle. I mean, it happens all the time. <laughs> right, right, right. But the the uh, the mother would probably suffer to to some extent, um, and the reason what another factor we have to throw in that equation is the whole idea of um, these when we're talking about moral evaluations, we have to throw in uh, the oh boy I, I forgot what I I called it specifically. Um, the, the social moral value, the social moral value. That's right. It, and yeah. the social moral value and the effective moral value. So humans have a lot of social moral value uh, and we give those humans social moral value. So the, the mother has social moral value where the, the, the cow doesn't, we mm -hmm. care about humans. We have a lot more empathy for humans. So that whole idea of taking a, uh, a baby away from the mother so we could drink the mother's milk, that, that uh, changes the moral equation because of the social value we assign the human mother that we don't give the cow. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I answered that question for you. By an yeah, I mean, to, yeah, to, to, to some degree. And I, I mean, let's just extend that a little bit um, because I think, you know, what, what you just laid out right now was really 
a very direct interaction. You know, we're we're taking something away from the animal, or we're mm-hmm. killing the animal, or et cetera, et cetera. But you know, what about um, things like cars killing animals? Um, you, you know, so if we're if we're really wanting to not kill animals, right? So like, in a, let's just pretend we're completely binary here and. I subscribe to the idea that um, animals, you know, my moral framework says that all animals should exist. They should, we should leave them alone. We shouldn't eat them. We shouldn't touch them. Well, you know, but I'm okay with wearing leather shoes. Uh, I'm okay with buying a car that has leather seats. Um, You know, there's all sorts of products that are made from animal parts. There's a whole nother side of that discussion. You know, I mean, even if you think about um, growing vegetables, right? So if you're growing produce, your gr- most um, vegetables are grown in manure, first of all, or you know, to some degree. Um, but to to add to that, we're use, we're doing things like pest management, right? You know, in sure. farms. So we're intentionally killing those animals so that I can grow my wheat, so that you know, field mice don't eat eat all the wheat. So you know, you know, I mean, that for me, when I just start looking at it like that, especially the last point, you know, killing animals to grow vegetables, right? right. You know, I think that most people don't even think about that. But 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 I think for for most people, they would consider that as acceptable. Yeah. Or unless you just want to starve altogether. Right. Right. So. I call this something, I call this the Goldilocks bias, basically. And that's where all of us have this individual point where we say, okay, this is, this is okay. This is the perfect amount of moral behavior. And if you're on one side, you're an extremist. And if you're on another side, then you, you have no morals or you're morally bankrupt. Uh, but of course, where I am is perfect, you know, right in the middle. And that's something that, that that's a bias that we all kind of have. And, and you could see this like it, it, it runs rampant in the, in the vegan community because you have like, you'll have vegans who, who say, yeah, I don't, I don't mind uh, having honey. And then what? Yeah, look at all those bees and how they're suffering and how they're being slaves. And, and then so all of a sudden the the vegan who won't touch meat won't touch milk eggs or anything is all of a sudden morally bankrupt because because they eat honey and then you'll have that vegan who of course will say to the other one well you know okay you are a little bit cuckoo you're a little bit an extremist here <laughs> talking about like not eating honey because of this or not watching football on tv because the football is made from steer uh, you have to kill an animal in order mm. to take that. And and if you're watching football, you're supporting an industry that kills animals. And it, 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 I mean, it could go on. The whole causal chain is just, it, it, it could get ridiculous, obviously. So yeah. from what I understand and, and from the vegans that I spoke with, it, it, it really is about, and this is what where it's very unclear, it's about reducing the animal suffering as much as necessary. Now, yeah, what which, does that mean is yeah, what is necessary. That's very fuzzy. <laughs> right. It, it, it basically means, what it means is as much as I'm comfortable with, personally comfortable with doing. So is it necessary to, to eat a healthy diet and be healthy, or is it just necessary to eat enough to live? Because as you mentioned, if you're eating more calories than you absolutely need to survive, you are contributing to the deaths of all these field mice um, of mm. all these rabbits, of like everything that they would harvest the reed, you, they chop them up in the in those those machines uh, when they do the farming, and they uh, poison them to to keep them out of the fields. Um, it, it's animals are always dying. When you live in a community, 
and you live in a house, well, somebody cleared that land and probably killed tons of animals or relocated them. Uh, and so you're living at the animal's expense. I mean, it's constant. It, it's just the way nature is. We're constantly living at the expense of other life forms. And it's not to say that people don't, or other life forms don't live at the expense of us too. I mean, when we die, uh, we've got life forms all o over us, uh, eating us away. When any animal dies in the woods and tons of uh, yeah. insects and, and bacteria and birds and, and whatnot are out there eating up that, that animal. I mean, it's, it's the circle of life and it's, it's very difficult to, to try to justify rationally or logically like a, like a pure vegan position because no matter what, you're going to be a hypocrite somewhere else down the line. Well, I, I think also you just, there's no, you can't escape it. There, there, there is no escape. And, you know, um, so I spent a lot of time with indigenous communities around the world, but here in Canada, I spent six years working and um, living part-time with an indigenous community. And one of the teachings that they uh, brought forward that, you know, I always remember is, you know, in terms of their, how they viewed food and how they viewed life, you know, they would always, you know, the hunter, um, you know, let's say shooting the deer would be, you know, like say a prayer kind of thing, you know, mm. thank you for giving your life so that my family can eat and just know that when I die, um, I'm going to lay on the ground and my body's going to go into the earth and provide nutrients. They obviously didn't say that word, but uh, where I lay, plants are going to grow and your descendants are going to be able to eat off the feed off those plants. So there's, right. there's always this recipro reciprocal um, relationship um, this sort of give and take. And I've always said, you know, people say life, life gives life. And most life comes from death. In fact, you know, if you think about the soil that everything's grown in, um, that's decomposed organisms, that's old, you know, whatever it is, whether it's animals, whether it's plants, whether it's leaves, whatever the case. In fairness to the vegan arguments, the, um, the main difference there is that we are dying naturally versus killing other sure. so, yeah. so that that's kind of where the moral consideration comes in not mm -hmm. just is it okay to eat dead animals i don't think anybody would have a problem with that it's is it okay to kill the animals and, right so, so yeah or, most people are not going on the road and um you know scraping up roadkill um you know of an animal right. that just died on its own. Believe it or not, there is a group of people who do that and promote that. Which... I, I, I know, I know. I, uh, I've come across that. Um, <laughs> it's anyway. crazy. But let, let's not go there. No, uh, no, no, no. Yeah. So I, I just, it's very interesting to sort of tease all this out because I don't feel that there's any one wrong or right answer. Um, but do you feel, I mean, just sidebar before we get into the next one here, do, do you feel that a lot of these positions that people are taking, um, and maybe I'm going to put my foot in it, but do you feel that there's an element of needing to be morally superior to 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 someone else or to other people or do you, you know this is it, is it vir more virtuous or how would you you know how would you describe that because um, and the reason why i say that is because obviously in the public discourse i mean holy smokes people are anything but cordial to one another um you know sure. there's a lot of just black and white arguments people bashing each other and so i just kind of wonder where a lot of that stems from Sure. Well, there's a lot of virtue signaling, and, and indeed, and that means that uh, you put out your moral position to claim moral superiority on any topic, whether it be uh, religion, politics, or, or or eating meat, or not eating meat, or veganism. So that's that is kind of common, and it depends on the individual person and the interaction. 
So you could pretty easily tell when somebody's virtue signal signaling and somebody is really just trying to feel better about themselves and put other people down. It, it's difficult, obviously, to um, to know exactly what somebody is thinking, and that's kind of what you need to make that judgment. But for the most part, when f- from from the people that I've interacted with and from what I understand, uh, veganism really is a it, it's adopted by extremely empathetic people hmm. who truly believe that that they just have a really hard time with with uh, putting animals through any kind of suffering whatsoever for their own benefit. Um, so they make this decision based on that. And some people, I, I mean, I, I would, I bet there are vegans that we never hear from who are just who, who just live their own life and and just eat way, eat the way that they do, and they feel great yeah. about themselves, and they don't go around bragging about it on Facebook or Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, more power to them. I think that's great. So I, I really do think the foundation of this tends to be uh, the level of empathy. Yeah, and I would perhaps agree. how the people were raised, and maybe maybe they were convinced by some some pretty poor arguments. Maybe uh, so th- so they may adopt it at at a rational level. They may come into it at, as a ra- at a um, at a rational level, but not fully understand the the rational arguments for and against. Um, mm-hmm. So it may, it may sway them in in one direction. But really, to answer your question, um, you, some people might see this as virtue signaling. But uh, yeah, I, I also just I mean I, I feel like social media is just like the the worst place um, for these types of discussions in many senses because you 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 know you're behind a screen you can't see what someone's facial expressions are you can't um, really express your ideas you know if you type it up one way and it gets uh, interpreted a different way by someone well now you have to go and explain that and you know it just gets so messy i find yeah. uh, whereas if you actually have discussions like this you can actually have a lot more of a civil discussion and understand someone's position a little bit more understand where they're coming from and also push back you know have a little bit of 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 back and forth to um unpack all of these things because it's not easy and and i you know i'll say it again i don't think that there's a right or a wrong answer um you know again if you speak to 100 people you're going to get 100 different answers as to why they do or do not do uh, certain things right um so just uh, um, in the interest of time um i want to bring up a point that we covered earlier but the idea that if you can't kill animals then you shouldn't be eating animals and right. that, that, that's a question so i actually threw up on facebook um i threw up uh, in uh, you know ahead of your podcast um i said hey what questions would you ask a philosopher with with this topic and uh, that was something that came up of course um so so perhaps you can unpack that a little bit for us yeah, sure. So if the idea is, if you can't kill an animal, you shouldn't be eating it, like if you can't kill it yourself. But if you think about the foundation of that, it really doesn't make sense, because we hire people to do things for us all the time. And either because we we don't want to do it ourselves, or we physically can't or like or intellectually can't do it ourselves. So there are other reasons. So here's my stance on that. Like, for example, I I would have no problem whatsoever uh, fishing um, and pulling up a fish and eating a fish, but I never do because I mean it's a pain in the neck. I'd rather spend like a dollar forty nine on a can of bumblebee tuna, and right. <laughs> that's how much they go for, and uh, and eat the tuna fish. I mean that's it. I I could do it. Now when it comes to uh, let's say something I I don't want to do, like for uh, for example like a chicken. Uh, could I ever kill a chicken myself to eat it? I don't think so. 
again, because I'm, I'm a, a very empathetic person. And if given the opportunity, I don't think, I don't think I could bring myself to, to do it. Um, not because I think it's morally wrong, but because my personal level, level of empathy is so high that I, I just, I struggle with it, but I would have no problem, like from a general moral perspective, having that chicken killed for food, if that makes sense. So as a general moral rule, you know, is it okay to kill and eat a chicken? Yes. Uh, personally, can I kill and eat a chicken? No. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, a hypocrite. I'm not conflicting myself because I'm still going by a general moral principle just because I lack the, the, um, I, I guess the, the level of empathy or the indifference to the animal to be able to do it, to actually kill it. It doesn't mean that I'm not justified in, in eating it because morally as again, as a general moral rule, I think it's perfectly fine to, uh, to do that. Well, I think it's, it's just such a, I don't know. My, my brain is, uh, I feel like I'm at brain gym right now. Um, just trying to reconcile that, you know, because, because a lot of people based on what you just said, I mean, straight up, they would just be like, you're a hypocrite. Um, yeah. You know, but but I also look at this, you know, and just to sort of add to your point, I, I think that um, you know you're you're correct in the in the framing there. But I would say to people, well, what if I lived in a city and I couldn't grow um, vegetables? You know, does that mean I shouldn't eat them? So it's not really a moral thing, but it's just a practical thing, right? So like, I don't I don't have the time to go and grow like all of my grain for the whole year. Like, I don't have the space, I don't have the time, I don't have the money to be able to do that and then just keep on going with, um, you know, green peppers and cabbages and beans and whatever else. So I think there is uh, definitely a practical and, and pragmatic aspect um, to, to that as well. Right. Yeah, there sure is. Um, so, all right. So I think those are some of the arguments, um, you know, for eating meat. Um, is there anything that you want to tack on to that before we get into arguments uh, against eating meat? Yeah, well, uh, just on the on the last question, uh, th there's another consideration that's kind of interesting when you talked about like killing an animal. So, for example, if like can I kill a cow? And when people think about again, this is where the the, the logic and critical thinking comes in. Uh, can I kill a cow myself to eat it? Um, if I had to kill a cow every day if I wanted a hamburger, you know, no freaking way. Um, I, yeah. and like, even if I did eat meat, I don't think anybody could do that. You know, go out there and kill a cow, just to have a hamburger, but that's not the case. Let, let's say that a cow feeds 3000 people could give 3000 people hamburgers. That means that could I kill a cow once every eight years in order to have my hamburger every day? <laughs> that's essentially what you're asking. Mm. Now you could see how that moral, that whole moral uh, equation changes a bit because we're not killing a cow every single day. Um, if and you ask that question to people, can you kill a cow? If you had to kill a cow once every eight years in order to have beef every day, would you do it? And then ask the people, uh, if you had to kill a cow every time you wanted a hamburger, would you do it? You're going to get two very different answers. Yes. So you have to frame the question correctly that comports to reality, not some crazy straw man that, that gives you some wild answer that doesn't work. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, and, and I, of course, then, you know, you sort of circle back to the whole human well-being, um, you know, th that whole construct, because, you know, if that could feed 3000 people, well, would you be prepared to kill a cow to feed the village? Yeah. Knowing that people might very well starve. Um, well, I think, you know, 
you'd probably probably say sure. Um, you know, am I considering the health and well being of my tribe or of my people? You know, obviously we're not talking about that in an industrialized setting. Um, you know, this is a hypothetical. Uh, but we could. We, we could easily ask that same question in an industrialized setting and say, uh, would you be willing to kill a cow in order to not feed people so they don't starve, but feed them delicious meat that increases, that greatly increases their well-being? Yeah. Um, would you be yeah. willing to do that? And, and of course, farmers and, and uh, people who raise cows say, yes, I'm willing to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very interesting. So, so let's, let's get into the other side of the argument, which is arguments um, against eating meat. And something we did bring up earlier um, is the whole idea of reducing versus abstaining completely. And a couple of things that you bring up in the book is some studies that have been done where they've tried to teach people about pure abstinence and it hasn't really worked out. Um, so perhaps you can explain the difference between um, reducing and and abstinence. Yeah. So re- reducing is just what it sounds like. It's it's cutting back on meat and cutting back on meat to what y- y- any individual might be comfortable, like the level to where they're comfortable. For me personally, my level is eating meat about twice a week. That's where I got to the point where reducing meat increased, I feel like it increased my level of well-being to the point where it's at its peak when it, when it comes to um, my, my diet and eating. Um, However, if, if I try to cut out more, like any go to one meal a week or, or, or no um, meat at all, my well-being would go down. For example, like, you know, when Thanksgiving comes and I don't, and I eat just mashed potatoes, then you know, I'm going to feel horrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, if, if when I go to New York City, my favorite restaurant, and I don't get that delicious chicken parmesan that cost me $40, um, I, I'm going to feel terrible, like just having like a plate of pasta or something. Mm-hmm. So there, there are so many meals that I have that, that consist of meat that just greatly increase my well-being and, and just it makes me feel like it's a joy to be alive. And so we, we can't we can't look at that and we can't dismiss that. I mean, there's there's a uh, there's a big feeling there, um, a, a big increase to to personal well being. Mm-hmm. Do do you feel do you feel like the whole idea of reducing kind of reconciles things um, for for a lot of people? You know, so yes. You know, so if I can reduce, you know, and this is something that I've personally subscribed to, and I've I routinely talk about this, whether it's teaching or or online. It's just the idea of, of, you know, can I find my happy place, right? Can I find my happy medium whereby um, I can reduce my meat consumption so that I feel good, both from a health perspective, but also from a moral and conscious perspective. And if I double down on that and now go with local farmers who are perhaps um, pasture raising their animals, who are humanely and ethically raising them, uh, feeding them organic feed, et cetera, et cetera, like for me, that's a place where I can go, you know what, that's good. Because I tried vegetarianism for three and a half years. And from a health standpoint, it didn't really work out for me. And so I had to get to that point where I'm like, well, what am I going to do? You know, am, am yeah. I, am I going to take a hit so that, you know, so that I, I don't, so no animals are killed? Like, is, is that where I'm at right now? And it was not easy. Let me tell you, it was, it was something that I had to sit with for a long time. Um, and I feel like a lot of people are there. I feel like a lot of people are stuck in that zone where, you know, you start breathing guilt inside of you. You start feeling, um, I wouldn't say resentful because nothing to be resentful about, but you just kind of, um, y- y- there's a lot of angst and a lot of tension inside of yourself. Um, sure. 
yeah, yeah. So you know, when it when it comes to abstaining, of course, that's a big problem because mm. if you abstain or if you try to abstain, it's kind of like a pass or fail type of situation. And people who fail by, let's say, sneaking a, a, a bite of chicken, a chicken sandwich or something, like, ah, screw this, you know, I, I'm, I'm off the wagon. Uh, I'm going to start eating as much as I want now again. So when you see it as an all or nothing, that tends to be a big problem. Also, it, it, cutting, cutting back instantly like that and, and just completely abstaining it, there's a lot of biological factors that, it, I mean, it's really hard for your body, uh, hard for your, for your mind to be able to do that. And it doesn't work. Um, we know from statistics of the number of ex-vegans out there, I think it's like 87% of people who, who at one time claim to be vegan and then say, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's not working out for me. Yes. So, you know, do they, where do they go from there? Do they go back to fully eating meat? Do they kind of slow down and go to flexitarians? Uh, we don't really know. But if you try to push like an extreme ideology on somebody, they're going to resist in, in many different ways. Whereas if you encourage eating less meat and give people some good reasons, good arguments for eating less meat, cutting down on the meat that they're actually eating, then it, it's just such an easy thing to do. And if you look at it from an effectiveness perspective, if everybody just cut down on meat just like a little bit, I think, I think the statistic is if everybody just gave up like one meal a, a, a week of meat then we would we would double the efforts of the vegans. I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah, that, that, that is crazy. Just, yeah. So if if we could if we could encourage eating less meat, and when people are eating less meat, they're not just giving up one meal. They're they're usually going a lot more because they realize, oh, this is this isn't that difficult to cut down on my meat. Mm -hmm. Giving up meat, oh, that's that's very difficult. That's extremely yeah. difficult. Yeah. Um, but just cutting down on it, well, it's pretty simple. And you know what? I feel better after not having a cheeseburger for lunch every day. <laughs> you know, it's just switching that out with a salad or something. So uh, as they start to feel better about themselves, uh, both physically and, and, and morally, then they, that behavior starts to, to duplicate and they start to give up another meal and another meal until again, they get to the point where they say, all right, you know, if, if I push this anymore, then I, I'm, I'm starting to suffer like myself. My, my level of well-being is going down. So that's why I really think the, uh, and again, from this is social psychology, essentially. Like if you, if you try to encourage people to, to give something up completely that they love, uh, it's not going to work too well. However, you, if you tell them to reduce it and give them good reasons to do it, well, that's going to be far more effective. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like, you know, you just raised some really good points there um, from, from a general standpoint. You know, I mean, if you look at um, the stats, right? So you mentioned stats, um, the, the statistics for, for vegetarians going back to eating meat, right? So not vegans is around 86%. The stats for vegans that return to eating meat are around 74%, somewhere around there. Okay. Vegans are more likely to stick with it for reasons that we've discussed, you know, the moral um, and ethical side of things. But, but on the other end of the extreme, um, you know, I, I actually sent out a funny meme the other day, which, uh, which is a guy uh, it's all about um, the keto diet, right? So the keto crowd, I mean, it's like now you got to be 80% fat, you got to be 15% protein and less than 5% carbohydrates, but you are literally surrounded by a sea of carbohydrates, right? So so the, the people that are unable to maintain a keto diet, uh, the stat there is 91%. 
Mm. So 91% of people who adopt a keto diet will fall off the wagon, so to speak, because they can't maintain it. So the meme that I put out was, you know, this, this guy, a super old guy. And it was like, you know, once you get used to the keto diet, it's pretty easy to maintain. Uh, Jim, age 39. And this was a guy who looks like he's probably 80 years old because he's stressed <laughs> out, like trying to maintain this diet, right? And so I feel, I feel that, that, you know, coming back to your point, I feel that those extremes just, they, they make you feel shitty, to, to be honest, because you feel like if you can't subscribe to that extreme, well, then you're just doing a poor job and your health is going to suffer. You know, yeah. whether you subscribe to the vegetarian vegan side of things or whether you subscribe to the paleo keto side of things where it's like no grains, no beans, you know, and, and again, very, um, very strict. And as a clinician, you know, I mean, I have to deal with that um, every day in a clinical setting where, you know, you got to put people on a therapeutic diet. And one of the things I always say to them, I'm like, look, this is not forever. Right. If we have to go raw vegan because you got cancer or something like that, well, it's not gonna be forever. You know, like let's do it. Let's let's help you heal your body. Um, if you are suffering from something else, maybe we're gonna have to go on a GAPS diet or a keto diet or something that's a little bit more extreme. But I find that, you know, if you can if you can explain to people that from a therapeutic side of things, this is short term and then we're gonna peel it back. Or coming back to your point, you know, I think you raised such a good argument. Uh, again, coming back to public discourse, where where you can see people on either sides of that spectrum, just, I mean, it is ideological, it is all or nothing, you know, and if you don't subscribe to this position, then damn all of you. And you just have this where I, I feel like, you know, as you said, you would be in a much better position to influence people if it wasn't uh, presented in such an extreme way. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. And certainly that's what I've presented it um, from both sides of the, of, of the discussion. So, yeah. um, so, which sort of brings us to another point, and, and perhaps we don't want to labor over this, but uh, something that stood out in your book is the whole idea of speciesism. Like, like mm -hmm. can you explain what speciesism is? Because um, I think a lot of people haven't really heard of that term before. Sure. It was an idea. I, don't, I think it might have been coined by Peter Singer, one of the original um, animal activists who, who made some of these arguments. Um, I'm not 100% sure about that. But anyways, it's this idea that it's trying to uh, associate um, our, our um, favoritism, if you want to call it that, for humanity with like racism or sexism, like the wrongness, the, the moral problems with it. And that's a real problem. So basically, by, by, if, by calling somebody a speciesist, you're saying, well, well, humans are the best and everybody else is, is like less, less than. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's true uh, for virtually everybody. And no matter who says that, again, you're not going to, in, unless you find some crazy, crazy, like somebody who embraces nature and lives out in the woods and doesn't step on any ants. And mm. I mean, okay, maybe they could make that argument that all living creatures are equal. But again, biologically, that's not the case when we look at a uh, cognitive complexity. Um, and virtually everybody doesn't believe that if anybody was driving a car and uh, there was, there was, they either had a choice to either run over a kid or run over a squirrel virtually anybody who's not a psychopath is going to run over the squirrel. Is that speciesist? Well, yes, in a sense. Um, but it's very different from racism 
because when we look at when we look at race we have we're, like we're similar in virtually every every way it, besides like the superficial characteristics yeah so cognitive complexity it, it's identical uh, empathy it would be identical um, the reason that uh, there was there is and there was a lot more racism is because we were kind of like socialized to believe like us versus them and to see the differences and we are socialized to lose empathy so it was really like a social process that that wasn't based on uh, like nature or or reason in any sense it was just like a completely fallacious and problematic idea that the whole idea of racism whereas looking at species different and valuing our own species more than let's say uh, like a like a like an ant or a rat well this is this is nature because we have a much lower level of empathy natural level of empathy for those creatures biologically so this is something this whole idea of speciesism is really uh, has a biological basis it's not like a social basis and again, virtually everybody agrees with it, whether you say you do or you don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, just take a look out there, right? In the world, yeah. the writing's on the wall um, when you look at it like that. Now, in your book, you do have some good, um, you know, arguments uh, for, or sorry, arguments against eating meat. So perhaps can you talk, uh, walk us through maybe some of your top five um, reasons for, for perhaps reducing meat? Sure. Uh, I, I think like if, if, if you take all the arguments, you could put them into three general categories. You could put them in the moral category, the environmental, and then the health. Um, I mention in the book that I, my specialty is psychology mm -hmm. and, and not, not health. Not, I'm not a biologist. I'm not an environmentalist um, professionally. So I, I try to just kind of touch on those arguments. Mm. And as a, as a social scientist, I really look at the literature, I do a full review, and I see where the consensus is, if there is a consensus, and, and I just kind of go with it when there's anything that's not in my specific field. Uh, yeah. Because I, I trust science, I trust the scientific process, I trust the method, and I, I trust my fellow peers that specialize in these different areas. I, I believe when we were talking, uh, probably before the recording, it, it, was, it was pointed out that... Um, there's a lot of hype on the internet that overblows these studies that are being done in terms of um, how much damage meat actually does to the environment um, or how much damage meat does to the body. And I think there's, there's a lot of truth to that. I think people, um, and when I say people, I mean, uh, let's say bloggers and, and uh, media outlets might go for the extreme headlines and, and mm. they, they publish outlier studies or they completely batch the data and, and just uh, try to appeal to a certain ideological group, whether it be promoting veganism or promoting meat eating, which I see a lot more of people promoting meat eating because that's, 90 something percent of the audience right <laughs> like 95 well, i mean if you, get, if you get into the whole carnivore side of things you know i mean again i, I kind of cynically a bit tongue-in-cheek say the carnivores are the new vegans you know um where you know if, if yeah, i think everyone understands now because you know veganism has has risen a lot more people are, are conscious of that a lot more people are aware of that you know plant-based diets are are um fairly well known about at least now not necessarily adopted but the whole carnivore side of things is relatively recent in the public space. Yeah. And so now carnivore, I mean, just as, as the name suggests, I mean, only eat meat, 
like don't don't eat any plants, don't eat anything else. And they're banging on now about how carnivore, the carnivore diet is is the it diet. You know, like we're biologically hardwired, blah blah blah. And I just find myself sitting with that and going, you know. Really? Because it's it's the next, I mean, just take keto to the whole next level and yeah. see how you go. And I've had friends that have that have been on the carnivore diet for six months at a stretch. And they're just like, yeah, you know, you, you start feeling good after a while. But boy, you know, can you imagine you're trying to have breakfast with the family and you got to, you know, every day you're buying like four pounds of rump steak and that's what you're eating uh, all the time. <laughs> so it's not, it's not a whole lot of fun, you know, in that sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. But so... Uh, yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, the, the the science does not support that as being a good idea. But let's just say that long term, anyway. Yeah, long term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Long term, I think that like short term, you could pretty much do anything, and and there are and you know this better than I, but there are health reasons for 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 adopting a very strict restrictive diet for mm-hmm. for like different diets, different reasons. Uh, but most, if, if you look at if you look at what what's called like the blue zones. Um, in, in the world and the diets that people eat and cultures have been eating for centuries. Uh, it's, it's very clear the kind of diets that, that humans do the best on. And that has to do with, you know, a mixed variety, a lot of good grains like plant heavy with some meat, uh, fish and, you know, light, light mm-hmm. chicken or um, light meat. Uh, so you, you can look, you can look that stuff up. I mean, there's, um, it's pretty clear that, eating too much meat for too long is a, a real problem. Um, and I happen to think that if get completely giving up meat and all animal products is going to lead to a heck of a lot of problems as well. I mean, that's, it, that's pretty clear in terms of, uh, well, I, I think what's also interesting is, is just to, just to think about, um, you know, I'll, I'll expand on that just to, for, for a second here, thinking about different, um, you know, like geographical locations is, is a big one, right? I mean, if you go back, Two three hundred years, you know, long before we had industrial um, farming, you know, sure people were growing food. There was agriculture around the world, but you were sort of at the mercy of the environment. And you know, even uh, Dr. Weston Price, who I don't know, I guess a hundred years ago at this point, maybe not quite a hundred, like he traveled around to all of these communities um, as far afield. I mean, he went all the way down into the uh, South Sea Islands. He was in Scotland. He looked at indigenous populations here in North America, like all over the place. And he just found that their diets, I mean, in, in, in people that were very, very healthy, you know, the grandparents and the parents of these communities who were not exposed to any processed foods whatsoever, he found a stark contrast between that and the younger generations who were starting to consume more sugar, starting mm. to consume more, you know, more of the processed westernized foods that we're accustomed to nowadays. But what he noticed was that the, their diet across all of these populations were so different from one another, and they were largely dictated by obviously cultural norms and traditional norms, but they were largely dictated by the environment. You know, it's, it's like, like in, and just to get a little bit absurd here for a minute, but what would happen if I went into the Arctic and I told the Inuit that they all had to be on a plant-based diet? Right. <laughs> done. I mean, ju- ju- just done. You know, if I had to go yeah. to Jamaica and tell them all that they should be on a carnivore diet and all they could eat was whale blubber, um, you know, and adopt an Inuit diet, I mean, they'd be dead of a heart attack in, in like six months, you know. Sure. So yeah. then, then, of course, you bring genetics and ethnicity into the fold as well. But, you know, the reason why I bring this up is, is really, especially for you folks listening out there, 
is just to sort of like have a little bit of a normal balanced discussion about all this stuff without going too far into the extremes, which, which is, um, I think where a lot of people are going these days. Sure. Sure. So it, it, you asked me f- for pretty much like five different arguments, but really I have like one, uh, one major one and one main one that has to do with, with eating less meat overall. And that's a whole idea. If, if you, if you just consider the world and the state of the world and you ask yourself, would it be a better world if there was no animal suffering? So just go to an extreme. If there was absolutely no animal suffering, would it be a better world? I think I, I can't imagine anybody not answering yes to that. So let's just say you say, okay, yes. So now if you can adjust your personal diet in a way that brings that world closer to a reality, mm. like we're never going to get there, no suffering anywhere, but we could get closer. I could make that reality. I could get closer to that reality by reducing the amount of meat I eat. Now, again, the question is, at what point does my level of well-being start to decrease as well? And then we start to have a moral dilemma and then we have to start making moral decisions. But for the most part, I, I strongly and firmly believe that everybody could ask themselves that question and realize that they could help bring that world to fruition by reducing the amount of meat that they eat. And they'll start to realize that it is not only a lot easier than they thought, but it's also making them feel better and increasing their level of well-being to a point. And once they get to that point where it starts to go down, well, they could either just stop right there or they could start to make some tough moral choices and decrease their level of well-being for the benefit of the well-being of the animals. And that's like a philosophical choice. Mm-hmm. But it, it seems like a no-brainer if, if you do have any kind of moral conscience whatsoever. You do understand that animals do feel pain, that animals can suffer, the, the kinds that we eat. Then it, it's, again, it's a no-brainer, it seems, to, to cut down on the meat as much as you can until you feel like your well-being is starting to go down, whether it be uh, just for the enjoyment of food, your celebration of life, or for health reasons, whatever. When it starts to take a downward turn, then either stop or start to make some tough moral choices. But Mm -hmm. everybody could at least start that process, and they will realize that their level of well-being is is going up, assuming, of course, they're on the traditional American diet, eating as much meat as as the most average American eats. And they're not already a partial vegetarian yeah and uh, and i think you know that's just like a really great encapsulation to to sort of wrap things up for us and i'll just uh, double down on what you said and add another um, layer on that is is choosing animals that have been ethically raised that have been Mm. humanely raised that have been put out to pasture um that are antibiotic and hormone free etc etc you know we live in the west we 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 have access to this i would say pretty much wherever you are you have access to that even if you feel like you don't there are now online services where you can literally ship um, that sort of stuff to you, you know, sh- ship that type of meat to you. Nice. So, you know, and a lot of people will say, oh, but it's really expensive. Well, guess what? If you reduce it, that's not that expensive anymore because you're not eating it all the time. Um, you know, yeah. if you want to go with grass fed, blah, blah, blah kind of steaks that are, you know, 30 bucks a pound, well, yeah, you're, you're going to spend a lot of money and that's not attainable for most people out there. Um, sure. but again, reducing and um, and choosing better quality meat, you're actually going to land up spending probably the same amount of money, if not less, but you're going to be getting higher quality. Um, that's obviously good for your health, but also good for 
the environment, good for um, you know the uh, what, what you were saying, planetary health, if you want to look at it like that. Um, so, so Bo, before I let you go, um, where can people find you? Where can they catch up with you? Um, I'll obviously be throwing some of the links down in the show notes, but um, anywhere you want people to uh, catch up with you. And also, do you have anything new that's coming up that you want to share with our audience? Uh, at, at the moment, I have nothing new coming up. I'm, I'm just really kind of promoting this book. And the book, again, is called Eat, Meat, or Don't, Considering the Moral Arguments for and Against Eating Meat. The website is sentiocentrism.com, and that gives kind of a really good outline of the book and has a lot of Q&A. It was interesting because after releasing the first version, I just got inundated with with questions and like objections and stuff. So I, I not only incorporated those into the second edition, which is already out, but I made an FAQ at the end to answer some of those questions specifically. And most people find that the most entertaining and the most uh, satisfying reading those questions and answers. Uh, so that's again, is at sentiocentrism.com. I'm on Facebook at uh, the Dr. Bo show. I haven't been doing much of my own podcast lately. I've been really busy with other things, but um, I, I do plan to take that up someday again. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for stopping by. Um, it was a, a great discussion. Um, and again, I feel like, Good, good arguments for, good arguments against, and um, hopefully by the end of our discussion today, we, I feel like we kind of reconciled a lot of things and um, pulled people maybe a little bit more uh, center or left and right of center um, with regards to these uh, the, these issues. So um, for those of you listening out there, as always, um, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, if you did, uh, please consider uh, subscribing, reviewing, and most importantly, sharing this with your friends, your family, and your community. So, Bo, thanks again for stopping by. And thank you. I appreciate it. Awesome. And for those of you listening out there, you have a beautiful day wherever you are. Bye.